This is the Masters of Cinema, my name is Joachim and unfortunately Tom wasn't able to join us today due to work but um, with me I have Trevor Barrett from the Eclipse Viewer. Thank you so much for joining me Trevor. Hey thank you, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. This is, this is my first time but I've been listening to you guys since you started. <laughs> oh, that's so this is wonderful. We've been talking about this for quite a while so it's uh, good <laughs> to finally get it going. Before we get into like your podcasting history and film interest i thought we could talk just briefly about masters of cinema's um, announcement that they are going to release elaine may's a new leaf her directorial debut from 1971 this will be released on december 7th in a dual format um, release and they describe it as a sort of screwball comedy um, in which she stars along with uh, Walter Matthau. And um, I'm always keen to watch like Matthau in the late 60s and 70s and Charade is one that comes to mind. So I'm kind of looking forward to this one. Have you heard about Elaine May or A New Leaf in particular? I have. I, I saw the news that this one was being released on the Masters of Cinema line and was pretty excited. I... I I don't have a region free player yet, hmm. <laughs> so it excites me for people who can who can um, go out and get it, and also <laughs> excited me that there's maybe potential for it coming here to the U.S. sometime. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, I'm I'm uh, not too familiar with Elaine May's work, sadly, other than a few years ago the auteur cast uh, did a series on Elaine May, yeah, and kind of talked about uh, how sad it is that we don't know more of her work. And so I've been uh, I've been interested to see to see more of her stuff to see any of her stuff, and this looks like a great opportunity to do that in in a, in a good format and uh, hopefully with some really awesome uh, supplements. So mm. no, I think and and this one in particular just sounded like a delight. I'm also a fan of Walter Matthau, and yeah. so I the, this sound sounds like a lot of fun, and so I'm excited for you guys getting it uh, a little bit sooner than I'll be able to. <laughs> yeah, um, I wasn't too familiar with uh, Elaine May as a name, but I know her titles um, uh, with The Heartbreak Kid and at least Ishtar, uh, the notorious box office disaster. (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen that one, so I can't speak to the quality of that film, but um, it is an interesting, just just like a a thing in film history, Ishtar. Yeah, and it sounds like she's got quite the range i mean we've got this screwball comedy um and then not too long after it doing a fairly gritty uh mikey and nikki so yeah uh, i i think that she sounds fascinating i think that her career is is very interesting being a woman director um who who fought a really good fight uh, in order to get her films made and have some control over them and mm. and um you know then there was ishtar that kind of uh seems to have affected that quite a bit but uh, it, I, I'm, I'm hopeful again. Like I say, that we we can get more of her work out uh, in good formats that people can go and see. Because it sounds like there's a lot of cinema history here, besides just some good films, some good cinema history to dig into. Definitely. Um, from what I've read, she had some issues um, when she was doing this film about um, making her own cut of it. I think she handed in a 180 minute cut that was more of a black comedy. Mm -hmm. And then the studio cut it down to the 102 minutes that we are getting, which is more of a screwball romance comedy that we're getting now. So I would like to see some like contextualization of a like struggle with the production company. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard if there's going to be any kind of a supplement 
that addresses that or anything? No, usually when MOC releases uh, their announcements, they just say more special features to follow. So they haven't uh, really extrapolated on that yet. So those were pretty much the news that I have for this time around. But um, we could talk about just you, Trevor, and how you sort of got into the world of podcasting and your experience of it. All right. Uh, well, I've been listening to podcasts for for years, I guess about a decade now since they kind of started up. Hmm. And I never really thought that I would do a podcast or be involved in podcasting uh, until uh, a few years ago. I guess it was 2012 when David Blakesley um, and Rob Nishimura started the Eclipse Viewer. Now, at that time, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to join the Eclipse Viewer podcast, but they just talked about how, you know, they wanted to go through the films of the Eclipse series and of the Criterion's line, uh, the Eclipse series, and that they were going to, you know, take some time every month and and do that. And I thought, you know what, I might be able to do that um, on my own with something that I want to kind of dig into. And um, my blog is called The Mooks and the Gripes. I started it in 2008, and it kind of focuses, it always focused mostly on books. That was just something that I was able to do more easily at the time, um, even though film was always uh, something I was very passionate about. Hmm. And so in 2012, I decided to start a podcast um, with my brother, actually, uh, devoted to NYRB Classics, which is a um, a publisher here in the United States. Uh, does have some worldwide distribution, so you might see his, uh, their books over in the UK um, and other places at times. But uh, NYRB Classics—they're—they're they're kind of in my mind the Criterion Collection for books. They are great curators. They go—they um, get books published from all different parts of the world, um, and as well as classics that have gone out of print. Um, mm. And so I, I really enjoy their work. And so I started that podcast. And we're still doing it. I actually posted a podcast uh, about Bohemian Hrabel, um, the Czech author, just this last uh, week, uh, where I was talking to a few um, people from NYRB Classics and another publisher, New Directions, as well as one of Hrabel's translators, Stacy Connect. And so we are still doing that. But um, when the Eclipse viewer kind of died down, um, or I, I know that they got busy and their schedules weren't uh, working, uh, mm. David and Rob... Um, went silent for most of 2013. Uh, and it was about October or so of 2013 that I finally reached out to David, um, being very forward and presumptuous <laughs> and said, Hey, uh, I'll do whatever I can to help uh, you guys get back on board, including if you're, you know, if, if you need another co-host, I'd like to, to put myself forward though. I, I don't claim to have any expertise. It just, uh, you know, I, I would love to to dig into this stuff with you. And the the reason I did that at all is that you know I, I'd seen um, him saying that you know uh, Rob's schedules and and priorities had kind of changed. So I wasn't trying to say you know hey if you need another co-host I'll step in. It was more just that I I, I felt like that was probably one of the one of the issues um, hmm. was that they they just uh, weren't able to get back together. And do the podcast, and uh, David, uh, generous and 
and and kind and uh you know is a, is a wonderful person i know you know him and i've mm-hmm. loved your shows with him um he accepted my my uh <laughs> my proposal and uh, <laughs> we we've been together ever since and it's been wonderful that was late 2013 so we've been uh, every month digging into another eclipse set and it it's just been it's just been fantastic and that that's kind of what got me into the world of film podcasting I've since uh, done some episodes with the the main line of the Criterion cast and Mm -hmm. have uh, just been thrilled to get to know more and more people and so that these conversations can go on. Uh, I love being a part of them. Um, I I try not to put myself forward as as someone who... Uh, you know, I studied film all my life and I'm a, just a supreme expert. I'm, I'm not, I just, I just love it. And I love that there's a community of fans and experts out here and being able to, to communicate with them um, and not just listen has been fantastic. And, you know, like I say, I, I've been listening to the Masters of Cinema cast uh, since, uh, since the very beginning. I was trying to remember how I found out about you guys because you weren't aligned with Criterion cast yet. No. Um, it may have been a stray tweet here or there. I'm not 100% sure, but um, like I said, I, I've been uh, really uh, engaged and interested in, in your work as well. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that, that now we're coming together a little bit and I'm able to benefit from from a conversation with you. Definitely. We're all part of the same family now, it feels like. So uh-huh. it just you know, serves <laughs> to be correct that we all should be together at some point or another. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. When you came into the Eclipse View, did you notice any, like, like how was the reception from the listeners? Did you notice any, like, um, thrill that you're just able to be a part of it? Was there any lesser enthusiastic responses? Or did you have any, like, backlash when you entered into this world of a public voice, basically? Well, I don't, not that I know of, um, with the Eclipse viewer, I, no. maybe it's because Ryan and David have shielded me or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe they don't send me the the emails that say, get rid of Trevor. <laughs> Cause I've never seen one. Um, I have heard good, um, good words from, mm-hmm. from others who email and say that they're, they appreciate the show, love the show. Um, and that's been great. I did have uh, I, I was on an episode of the the of uh, Criterion Close Up uh, oh, yeah. a, a month or two ago, and um, it was a called the Geek Fest, and we were on just to talk about rumors and things we hoped to see come out from Criterion, and that they also threw in a segment at the beginning on Criterion's November releases, and I admitted that I hadn't seen any of them other than the Ikiru. Um, which was being Blu-ray upgraded in November. Mm-hmm. And I did get some backlash on that because people were saying, <laughs> why did you even invite uh, Trevor onto the show if he doesn't, hasn't even seen the November title? So, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a stranger to it. Um, I, I don't know. I hope I, hope I don't tank Masters of Cinema cast with my appearance today. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any, any trouble there. So. <laughs> you guys keep going. You know, whatever people say, you know, you can, you can get rid of me. <laughs> and you guys keep going, please. <laughs> no, no. But uh, yeah, I listened to that uh, Criterion Close-Up uh, episode, actually. I've been, it was only fairly recently, I've 
been able to like sit down and listen to those guys' episodes, uh, Mark Herney and Adam West, their new podcast, Criterion Close-Up. Aaron, uh, Aaron West. Aaron West, Sadly, sorry. Adam West yeah. wasn't available. <laughs> ah, damn it. <laughs> no, Aaron West, of course. Um, but I really did enjoy that, especially those episodes that are not movie-related more like a complete like criterion geek fest uh, i love that uh, sort of new it brings something new to the whole world of criterion podcast for me well and and as you were kind of saying it, it just builds up the community even more i mean mm-hmm. I, I do feel like all of us are, are are friends and and are able to communicate online and, and just chat about these things and it's a friendly community it's a good Definitely, place to yeah. be um I, I really I really like communicating with everybody. You know, there there are certainly some communities where I can appreciate what they say um, because I think they're smart and intelligent. But I would never really want to meet these people, you know, or, mm. or go hang out with them. But they're everybody that I've uh, been in touch with on you know in this community. Uh, I'd I'd love to hang out and watch movies together and you know talk about them over dinner things like that. That just mm. it's just a, a great group. I think that's something that I take away the most from doing podcasts is just how everyone is so forthcoming and open and everyone seems so incredibly friendly and enthused just to be able to talk about movies with us and have us on and it's just one yeah one big happy happy family basically. (laughs) (laughs) Since you started doing film podcasting do you like experience film watching in a different way. Yes, I do. Um, as, as I said, kind of at the time, I was primarily focused on books when I was doing my writing mm-hmm. um, and my blog, and and I've that writing about books has, has been a wonderful thing for me. It, it's changed the way that I read uh, for the better. It's it's changed how well I remember things that I read, and 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 I think it's even changed my tastes a little bit because I'm mm-hmm. able to articulate what I like and what I don't like. And, and the same kind of thing has happened with film watching. Um, I do write about film as well. Um, but the podcasting, it, it, I think it's a little bit different even because I, I'm able to, to con- converse, you know, when, when you do a, a review or a post about a certain film, there's kind of a, a one-sidedness to it. You're trying to articulate your thoughts. I love the back and forth with a podcast and so when I'm watching something for the Eclipse viewer and, and when I watched um, Ugetsu for this, I, I anticipated differently than I would if I were simply writing about them. I anticipate where a conversation can go, um, what potential responses there might be, what other viewpoints. Um, I think uh, better than I do when I'm just watching something on my own and certainly a lot better than I do if I'm simply watching something with absolutely no intention of of writing or thinking mm. about it again. <laughs> so yeah. just it, it, and it's, it's a good thing. Um, I have talked to some people who don't understand it and who say, so you can't just sit down and enjoy watching a movie anymore. And I'm like, no, I, it's the opposite. I, I can sit down <laughs> and enjoy them a lot more. I, I think they, they, the reason that, that they wonder that is that they feel like, you know, I want to just sit down and let, let it flow over me. I don't want to think about it while I'm watching it. And, and I don't know, I, I find that movies still flow over me and still overwhelm me and still affect me greatly. Um, and I feel like I'm able to pinpoint and appreciate it in the moment, maybe a little better than I used to be able to. So, yeah, it's been it's been a good education for me for 
for many reasons, and I, I do like um, watching movies when I know I'm going to talk about them. Hmm. It for me, it sort of makes me channel my attention more towards the movie. I'm less inclined to like pick up my phone or hit the pause button or just be satisfied even if I don't understand something in the movie. I'm more inclined to like investigate and sort of monitor myself more when I'm watching the movie, when I'm doing a podcast about it. Yeah, I think I do the same thing. Um, for example, Ugetsu. I, I think that had I sat down just to watch this one on my own, um, and I watched it quite a few months ago. I've actually watched it three times since we since we said we were going to do this because mm. it's been a little while. Um, the, I, had I sat down to watch it, I'm not sure if I would have paid too much attention to to just the filmmaking itself the first time. I think I would have just tried to capture the story. But because I knew we were going to be talking about it, I did I did sit there and I thought, okay, what what am I noticing about the the filmmaking because this is known as the most you know one of the most beautiful films ever created um what do i agree with that and and i i forced myself to kind of look at that a little bit closer um you're absolutely right it, it makes you it makes it makes me as well pay attention um, a lot more than maybe i would have otherwise hmm. we're being mindful in our movie watching <laughs> yes yeah exactly and that, yes. that's a great way of putting it <laughs> <laughs> do you have any like um further knowledge about misaguchi or his other films other than ugetsu uh it, it doesn't it's not too deep um the reason that i chose ugetsu when you uh, invited me on hmm. was an effort to get to know him a little bit better he he is going to be the subject of one of our eclipse viewer podcasts because there is an eclipse set uh the fallen women films. exactly fallen women and so I thought, you know what, I, I've, I've got Ugetsu, I've got The Life of Oharu, I've got Sancho the Bailiff, all of them here on Criterion um, Blu-ray or DVD in the case of mm. Ugetsu, and I need to get to know him um, a, a lot better. And um, so I, I have read into him uh, quite a bit. I, uh, David uh, is, is a great watcher of Japanese film, and has definitely instilled in me a passion for Japanese film as well. So I, I was pretty sure I was going to pick uh, a Japanese film, or at least make some suggestions. I, mm. you know, and I, I think my whole list I sent you may have been all Japanese films um, from Masters of Cinema. Mm. Um, and so I was thrilled when it was Ugetsu. Uh, so I am kind of new in my in my experience with Mizuguchi, and he comes, uh, you know, with a, a lot of uh, praise and baggage that. That I, I wanted to to see if I agreed with it. Mm -hmm. um, Ugetsu, maybe in particular, has the reputation of always being on, you know, top among many lists. And again, that that acclaim of being one of the most beautiful movies ever made uh, in terms of it's just filmmaking. And so I, I kind of came to this fresh again, fresh fresh a few months ago. I have had a little bit more time to 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 read about these and to get to know his work a little bit better. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's still pretty, pretty fresh for me. It's, it's not a, not a deep relationship yet, but one that I've always anticipated would, would grow to be deeper. I, I have, uh, quite a few more of his films on the docket. And again, we'll be, we'll be podcasting about the, the fallen women set, um, I think sometime next year. So hmm. there's, and I'm happy to say that Ugetsu didn't, didn't disappoint despite the high praise, um, 
I'm excited to keep getting to know Mizuguchi better and to get to know this film even better uh, over over the years. It it looks like it's going to be a beautiful relationship. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a selection of Mizuguchi films on Hulu Plus, actually, for the listeners, if you have access to Hulu Plus. There's the Fallen Women Eclipse box set. I think all the films are available there. Um, I'm not quite sure, but I saw at least four of them. So Yeah, I'm not sure either. I... Um... A lot of the Eclipse sets are entirely on there, and it wouldn't surprise mm. me if that's one of them, given the the right situation of most of the Mizuguchi films. Yeah. There's also uh, 47 Ronin, part one and two, the story of the last Chrysanthemum, Princess Young, Kwai-Fi, as well as Life of Fuharu, Sanshu, and uh, Ugetsu, of course. So and listeners are able to like get deep into Mizuguchi before you have to search elsewhere. Do you have any like familiarity with uh, Akinari's book of the same name? No, no nope. Other than the the the, uh, the um, Criterion DVD does come with a booklet that has the uh, the story, the two stories. Oh, okay. um, they're included, the short stories. Uh, sadly, I haven't. I, I kept putting off sitting down and reading them. And hmm. so I haven't read them, though, you know, it would only make sense that I did. But I, I apologize, <laughs> I, I haven't. But I did read about it, um, you know, just to get a little bit more information about the background of this uh, this rather strange, uh, strange story of Ugetsu. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Ugetsu, it's comprised of these two short stories that he sort of mixed together to create this bigger story that he's trying to tell. Um, but... The first time I watched this, I felt that the the film for me it became sort of a film of two halves for me. Uh, it it was a very like divided viewing experience where I I popped it in um, late one night. I saw twenty minutes. I couldn't really get into it. I had the issue of like you stated earlier, where I was watching it by myself, I wasn't really in the right mood. So my attention wasn't really at the movie. So it sort of flowed there and I couldn't really engage with it. So the next night I started it over and I got more into it. I understand, I understood what sort of film it started out being with the the mood and the unlikable men and the sort of unusual portrayal of women and just that that sort of pervasive and aggressive greed that just sort of oozes off every man in the film almost Mm -hmm. but after Genjiro sort of meets this lady um, Akaza uh, the noble woman I couldn't quite follow that that shift in tone and that sort of second half where it goes into the more mysterious realm for me that sort of fell through right until like the final five minutes or so which are so incredibly gripping where my interest really peaked uh, in the entirety of the movie so I was so excited to go back to it watch it in its entirety and sort of see the film in a sort of a new viewpoint uh, through a different prism uh, with that ending in mind and that, that second time around I was much more aboard with the film I was now sort of expecting that mysterious, enigmatic quality in the film, rather than being kind of surprised uh, by the introduction of it. The first time I was more 
sort of attuned to these socio-political ideas with the class system and whatnot. And I didn't kind of see that supernatural thing coming for some reason. But the second time, it sort of gelled much better together for me, these two, two sort of stories. But how was your kind of your first viewing experience of Ugetsu? Do you remember? Yeah, it may have been fairly similar to yours. Um, mm. It's it can be it's disorienting to begin this film. I, at least that's what I remember feeling um, because the way that it begins, uh, we're kind of in a in a remote village in Japan. And it's, oh, I can't remember exactly, is the 16th century, something like yeah. that, the late 16th century. Um, and there's a civil war going on, and we get to know two couples. Uh, there's uh, Miyagi and Kenjuro. Um, Miyagi played by the wonderful Kinuyo, Tan- or, uh, yeah, Kinuyo Tanaka, um, whose work I've been getting to know over the last year or so. I, hmm. I, I love her work. And, and just, to, just to throw this out there, um, she's in a Hiroshi Shimizu film, Ornamental Hairpin, which is the first one that I ever saw her in. Hmm. And wow, I, uh, she's great in that, in that movie. Um, she steals it. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's, she's just fantastic in it. And, um, and then she's in a movie called Army by Kaisuke Kinoshita. And again, um, she kind of steals the movie. That was, that was maybe a movie kind of like Ugetsu where I, you know, you, you can watch the whole movie um, and kind of be, you know, interested, moving through it, and then the end happens, and the end entirely involves her, um, and it just, it, it I, my jaw dropped, I, and I actually mean that literally, I think I sat there with my mouth open the whole time I was watching the end of Army, and and it was it was her, so I, w- I was thrilled to see her in, in this film as well. Um, obviously, she, she's pretty well known for her work with uh, with Mizuguchi, uh, with Life of Oharu, Getsu, and Sancho the Bailiff, kind of a, a one, two, three punch there in, in the 50s. Um, but, uh, but she plays uh, one of the wives, Miyagi, and her husband is Genjiro, um, who, who does pottery kind of on the side. Uh, he, he's a potter. And the other couple is Tobe, who is a farmer. And Ohama, uh, his wife, and we kind of just see them get you know walking around the village doing various things. They know there's a war on, but their 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 life has to go on. You know, they they mm. can't just uh, up and leave. They they have their homes there, and it you know it wasn't necessarily the most captivating <laughs> the first <laughs> time through because you know every everyone's new. You know, they don't have anything to to uh, to latch on to quite yet. Um, but that did uh, did start to to change a little bit uh, when the war hits them, and um, and as you said, you see the men uh, kind of uh, in their greed, trying to to take advantage of this terrible situation, but also being being victimized by it. And I hmm. guess we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. But um, but I, I agree. I think my first viewing through it was was a lot of trying to to make sense of the storyline because it does go various places. And I knew it was based on the two short stories. And there's also a thread from a a Guy de Maupassant story in here. And uh, I can, I can definitely see what you're saying. If you look at it as segments, you can see, you can see the segmentation a little bit. Mm. Um, But uh, once I think you're right, once, once you know kind of how the story all goes on a second viewing, 
um, it flows together just beautifully. And you can see how each piece plays off of the other one and builds the other ones up. And and so that's probably where my real admiration for the film started as well. And then when I watched it the third time, it was just, uh, you know, almost sheer beauty. Uh, I, I finally was able to more understand what people mean when they call this one of the most beautiful films ever made. Um, I admit I didn't quite see that the first time watching it. You know, it it was beautiful, but the mm. most beautiful, I, I didn't didn't uh, <laughs> didn't catch on to most most of that um, the first time through. Whereas the you know each subsequent viewing just just did build more on itself until you know I, this is this is a pretty phenomenal pretty phenomenal film um, mm. that uh, I, had had we not been doing this had I just watched it once on my own you know maybe I would never would have had that experience and which is mm. kind of sad but uh but i uh, glad that glad that both of us seem to have uh seem to have developed uh, an appreciation oh yeah for sure um i think this is definitely one of those movies that just rewards new viewing experiences over and over again uh second and third and fourth time around i think there's always going to be things that you can like pick up even though i have I have certain issues with the film that we'll get into later, but um, still just being able to peel back the layers of how he tells the story um, is quite an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how the stories play off of each other. I mm. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I found a quote from Mizuguchi um, that says that whether war originates in the ruler's personal motives or in some public concern, how violence disguises war oppresses and torments the populace, both physically and spiritually. I want to emphasize this as the main theme of the film. And this really relates for me to the sort of how he portrays men versus women in that this is a really like harrowing look at men really and it feels like close to every man except the elderly uh, in this film uh, are either greedy or envious and they are the ones who are just corrupted by this ongoing war that is going on yeah i i agree with you there the the thing that i love too about it is that both of the husbands have their issues um the Genjuro, he wants to make money off of the war. Well, they both want to make money off of the war. So mm. he's got that greed streak. He he recognizes that this war is good for business, and so and he, and he puts his family at risk in order to to make the pottery and then to sell the pottery, and um and then we have Tobe who who wants to become a samurai. He just got this streak that he feels like he needs to be, you know, in, in, uh, honorable, and and that kind of appeals to him and. You know, all of those things, even though we don't live in 16th century Japan, you know, that's something that I, I know from myself and from many of the people around me, many of the men around me, you know, these are not, uh, <laughs> <laughs> these, these are still going on, not even just in time of war, but um, there, there, he, he, Mizuguchi certainly captures that um, more masculine, I, I, and I know we're, we're probably going to speak in generalities to get this out there, but I think it does hold up a little bit, but that masculine uh, desire for power and mm -hmm. that comes through money or honor or you know fame um great feats of athleticism and and he really captures that in these two men and he makes them unsympathetic because of it but he doesn't make them in my opinion hateable 
you know, they're they're very relatable. They're, these mm-hmm. are these are men who love their wives. They're not they're not brutes. They're not out there telling their wives to to get out of my life. You know, this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, no, uh, quite the opposite. They love their wives and almost use that as as an, as an excuse to pursue these dreams of theirs because mm-hmm. they want to impress their wives. They want to become uh, the men that they think they should be so that their wives will have the good husband. You know, Genjuro mm-hmm. wants to be rich so that he can buy her fine silks and and uh, just provide a nice life for her and for their son. They do have a young son. Uh, Tobe wants to be, you know, someone that his wife can admire and, and look up to and say, wow, you know, my husband is a great warrior. Mm. And it so it is, it is selfish, but it's not entirely selfish. And, it, and I, I do love how he... He makes them sympathetic and relatable mm-hmm. in a way that we can sit there and go, you know, I, I'm I'm a bit that way too, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but so, so it's so interesting how, like in Tobe's um, example, you have this man who he wants to become a samurai because he views them as such, um, like such a profession of stature. But when he leaves his wife, or when he rather runs off with the money and leaves his wife, he. <laughs> he sort of puts her in a position that where she's lost and she's isolated and she's alone and she's raped by the same profession that he wants to become. These soldiers that come and rape her, that's sort of what he attains to be. There's this duality there. And you also have like Genjiro who wants to buy his... He wants to buy his wife like these silk robes and make her sort of a a noble woman. And he meets a noble woman who is anything but nice to him. <laughs> you would say she's um, the noble woman becomes his demise of sorts. So you have these two men that are sort of seeking this this sort of uh, thing that doesn't really exist in the reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and like you said, subverts their own their own wishes in a way, their own, their own desire to be good men for their wives. The, mm. the very things they're pursuing are, are the reason that they don't, they can't do that. Exactly. Um, and I, there's one thing I wanted to bring up because I, I think it's easy to, to look at this and say uh, that that's the point of the movie then is that these men should not go this way. Mm-hmm. I kind of like, and I, and I kind of, I can see the, see that side for sure. I, I would certainly, um, probably be on board with that. But the the criterion package comes with an essay by Philip Lopate where he says, uh, he doesn't think that uh, Mizuguchi is saying that he's just Mm. portraying humanity as it is. He's not saying these men shouldn't go out and become ambitious um, and just stay home during this war. I mean, that that's almost impossible of of a request. You know, when, when you see opportunity, when you see uh, a way to improve your situation, you know, we're, we're human and we, we tend to take it. Um, so he sees a little bit less condemnation and a little bit more just pure exploration and um, and maybe maybe pity for our human state, I guess, you know, the, 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 mm. the way that we are fallible and can can ruin our own lives by trying to make them better um, rather than rather than necessarily placing the blame on the men themselves. Uh, and I, I like I like having that perspective in there as well. You know, the mm-hmm. kind of the, the two sides, one can be feel a little moralizing like, oh, stay home, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and then the other one saying, you know, you know what, there's no guarantee that if you do that, you're not going to screw up your life either or die. You know, there, there, there's, they probably would have died, you know, had they stayed in their village. Hmm. Um, 
the the war was was brutal. The war uh, destroyed the lives of more than these two families, and and not just because everybody was out uh, seeking for something that they shouldn't have been seeking. Uh, it destroyed the lives of the women. Um, probably would have whether their husbands were home or not. Sadly, yeah, I'm, I read that same um, that same essay, and I'm not sure if I well, I agree that um, you can view the film like that, but I'm not sure that I complete. I'm not sure how much that reflects the film or how much that reflects Lapasse's own personality of sorts, because you have sort of mm-hmm. also this Japanese culture of. Like when I think of Japanese culture, I think of loyalty. I think of like sacrifice. I think of um, unselfish behavior. And this is a country now uh, when we are watching the film that is like ripe with selfishness. It is a country which is sort of where the population is left to itself uh, and they are feeling that they are owed something by the world and they are neglecting their responsibilities. They are neglecting their duties in search of like money and glory. And I feel like maybe in some ways it could be interpreted as a waving finger at what many would deem like an American mentality of power and fast money. Mm -hmm. Whereas what post-war Japan really needs is like hard work patient care um which is where our two men like end up in the film yeah no i think that's a great point i i I like the i like both perspectives and Mm -hmm. you know realizing that yeah japan this film came out in 1953 it hadn't been very many years since um you know japan uh had failed at its uh, you know imperialist uh war Mm -hmm. um pretty miserably and it was a war of of selfishness. They 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 were seeking their own um, fame and glory in a way, and not not necessarily all of them. I just mean, uh, gener- in general, the leaders mm-hmm. were able to manipulate these feelings of of loyalty and honor, um, and of uh, you know, kind of building yourself up. They were able to manipulate those to get their people I- I- engaged in a in a in an imperialist war, and that uh, that failed miserably these very values of honor and and of uh, uh, of reaching our, our our full potential are the things that uh, kind of ruined the country for a little while and definitely devastated the country hmm. and so i, I definitely I, I agree i think that uh, mizuguchi particularly when you realize that he is trying to to explore the effects of war um, I think that you're right. He's he's doing a great job with that. Mm. The thing that I love though is is trying to look at it again. You know, pulling back from even that and saying, well, they're human. What would we have them do mm-hmm. um, otherwise? You know, what maybe these men should stay home, but they you do have that niggling thing of that's no guarantee that that things are going to work out for them yeah. or for their families. And so I, I I love I love the complexity there. Mm. I love that uh, that there's definitely um, a, a dealing with uh, here's where we are today, you know, after after yeah. this terrible war, and um, and also a feeling of uh, just here here's where we are as humanity always. Uh, sadly, mm-hmm. you know this 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 is a this is a period piece, uh, and and very you know 
these people that are struggling back in the 16th century are struggling with the very same issues that we struggle with today. Yeah. And and that's one thing. I, I don't know if you want to get into it quite yet, but I, I love that I do love the two worlds now. So we've got this real world of where, where the war is taking place. And then we've got this uh, more ethereal ghost world. And I love what, to me, each of them kind of represents. Uh, we have... We have the real world with its war, with its greed, with its ambition, with its power, hunger, mm. um, with its seek, seeking for fame and for for a better material life in a way. You know, they're they're looking to to better their situation, and then you have the ghost world, which comes in filled with um, regret, uh, longing, um, uh, n- not necessarily with greed and ambition anymore. But with uh, with loss of human of, of passion and feeling, it, it tends to emphasize to me what the real world um, is neglecting, hmm. and and I, I love that about this movie. I, I love how those two um, stories play together, um, and and I, I I would never have thought that that's how a movie like this could 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 function. You know, have a go- <laughs> it's a ghost story, and yet because of that very powerful in its examination of of war and and what it, what it has done to these families I, hmm. I i can't imagine watching this at the time you know in in 1953 um and when you know many of them had lost their own their own families their own husbands or wives or children yeah. um in in war and what those what those ghost scenes which don't play out as ghost scenes you know haunting like scary or anything like that but just play out as just sadness and loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can't imagine watching that at that time uh, and yeah. not being very affected by it. There's so much like remorse, as you said, filled in these scenes. And you have this character of the noblewoman, Lady Wakasa, who comes back to like walk the earth because she's in search of she's in search of human contact and in particular sexual contact with a man. On the one hand, you have this. That's sort of a beautiful thing about how people need this sort of more the closeness to another person, a love in their life. But they're also, I don't and, know. And I guess especially, sorry to interrupt, especially oh, when yeah. it's been stripped away from them. Yeah, You know, like exactly. the Lady Wakasa, she came back because she never had that in her life. It's not mm-hmm. that she like was lusty and thought, oh, I, I love that about humanity. It's that she didn't have that. And so she's come back. Um, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. No, because that's sort of where I'm going. Because on the one hand, you have this sort of, you can view this in a sort of um, uh, accepting light. But on the other hand, I feel that there's also a sort of a sexual morality that is worth kind of discussing. Because you have you have the wife of Tobey who becomes what I think the film deems as a sort of she takes an unworthy and prideless profession after her pride is sort of taken away from her when the soldiers rape her. She kind of loses her, uh, loses some value. And through that, and this is, of course, because what the husband has done, but still she, she's sort of treated lower uh, by society. And you also have this noble woman who, I guess you you could argue that she is somewhat greedy, wanting what she could not have in real life and coming back to Earth, haunting it in search of sex 
and she's perhaps portrayed as a somewhat kind of destructive force and i'm not i'm not quite sure how it all gels together but these were some of the thoughts i had when i was watching it that i felt like you had both sides both that she is of course coming back to search for closeness but on the other hand she really traps him and she really like makes him she tricks him into marrying him she sort of causes some disruption in his life yeah in in seeking that for herself she ruins it for someone else Mm -hmm. and and i I think again that goes with nicely with the themes of the film where many of these people in seeking in in seeking what they desire um just plain old ruin things for themselves and for others and that's kind of what happens with her she she steals this man away and you know in this case she happens to be a ghost and happens to have this this um this other story where she you know didn't have closeness when she was alive so she came back to to find it uh, and i think only some of that's sexual i think a lot of it is just the the intimacy you know mm. the closeness that um that she longed for that uh, Ken, genjuro had with his wife miyagi mm-hmm. um and I think that she can stand in for any number of reasons why a man might, uh, you know, kind of uh, lose himself in a way. You know, Genjiro, like, like you said, he, he's he's tricked into this, and he, and he, he's he's almost in a, in a dream state. You know, I, I love <laughs> it's very haunting. <laughs> but I love when he wakes up and finds out that, you know, that was all a ghost oh, yeah. encounter, and that the the home has been destroyed for for a long time and he looks he looks at this place that he has been himself basically haunting for the last uh, quite a while and it's just a, a wreck it's a ruin you know hmm. it's how wonderful to look at this man just uh, stomping mindlessly around in 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 a ruin um talking to himself basically hmm. um and so i i like thinking of of that as just the the various things that can um, can persuade a man to 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 kind of wander away and again in a way, hoping to make things better, he he does want to go back home. He he's been he's forgotten about that, mm. and um, you know there are many many reasons that I think in these situations, uh, men do, and, and I, I, I guess it's like women too. I don't I don't don't think about it necessarily as much that way, and it's not in the film, but um, where the men stray and and wander away and forget their families for a while, they they're pursuing other things. Hmm. And I think you're right with with that. He he destroys a, a family unit, hmm. um, which is the very thing that uh, the lady Wakasa is is trying to build up for herself. Only it's it's a false one. Hmm. Um, he he's given up his real one for this for this false one, albeit under uh, you know trickery. <laughs> <laughs> you have some and, uh, of this. I'm sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I was going to say, I'm not sure if I, I may have strayed a little bit away from what the thread you were pursuing there. Oh, no, um, it was sort of, um, I, I guess I'm, my view of it is um, perhaps a little more harsh <laughs> than than your view in terms of the closeness. Um, maybe the sort of search for intimacy was less present for me, uh, more than just her her need to, and I, I, I felt there was some sort of selfishness in just not becoming close, but just fulfilling that desire more than fulfilling a need for intimacy. Well, and I guess we can look a little bit at the way she tricks him. Um, she basically tricks him through flattery of, of his pottery. You know, she, she mm-hmm. comes to buy them and, and falls 
I don't know if she really falls in love, but she tells him that she loves his work. And so he finally um, is being recognized for, for his trade by someone. It isn't just a money-making thing, even though that's kind of why he's doing it in the first place. Hmm. And so he, he's he's drawn away. Here's someone who kind of recognizes a different part of his soul. And I don't know, I guess I kind of felt like that was maybe a little bit more genuine. That, it, hmm. you know, yes, that's how she did pull him away. That's how she did... Um, trick him into the whole the whole relationship in a way, but I felt like she did actually. I, I felt like there were plenty of moments when, uh, and this is she's played by Machiko Kiyu, who is also the woman in um, Rashomon and mm. does a fantastic job in there. But uh, I thought that the Machiko Kiyu portrays um, some genuine. Uh, beyond just lust, some genuine um, thrill. You know, just genuine. Um, Ple- uh, pleasure is the wrong word some genuine joy at being with Genjiro you know like hmm. the, the when they're out um, in the in the in the hot um, water um, and she just she has this face of I'm finally there you know mm-hmm. I, I finally I finally got what I'm looking for and so I did sympathize with her just a little bit because Again, sometimes it's like, well, what, what, what wouldn't you do? And I, no, you, you wouldn't, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> condoning this, but you can see someone who's just so desperate. Who this, this again, it wasn't something that she just missed out on, but was basically stripped from her. She's, she's a young woman who, who was killed um, before she was able to have this kind of relationship, hmm. and here she's granted a, a little bit of reprieve, and she's taking advantage of it. And again, I don't agree with it. But I, I, I guess I do have a little bit of sympathy for it beyond just um, she shouldn't have done that kind of thing. Hmm. So yeah, I, I think I, though I, I can see where you're coming from too. I I I, I don't want to suggest <laughs> that that uh, no, we should all do this. Go seek out love wherever you can find it. Uh, you know, forget who who you hurt. No, that's certainly not uh, not how, the way I feel. Huh. Um, <laughs> and I don't think many people have as good a reason to do it as she does. You know, she, she uh, is a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> There's not many of those out there. So. <laughs> right. But I do, I do find it interesting that the film kind of has this juxtaposition of these sort of like the rough characters, the men, and just the baseness of them. And yet it has this elegant and almost poetic quality in the film. And before I started like watching Mizuguchi, I've read that he's sort of placed, he falls in neatly between Kurosawa uh, on one end and Ozu on the other. And those are two very impressive names for sure. But his film style is like close to Ozu, where you have this sort of one scene, one cut mentality, but where Ozu kind of likes his camera locked down. And Mizuguchi, he has this sort of elegance to it. And the camera seems to almost flow from object to object within a scene. And I will, that's sort of where Kurosawa comes in, in in terms of the moving camera. And I feel like it's sort of interesting having a, a film that is so elegant portraying characters that are so rough, basically. Yeah. No, that, I think those are all good points. Um, and it seems like I either read this somewhere or maybe it was on one of the supplements in the Criterion disc, but uh, I think that Mizuguchi it shot uh, upward of 70% of these scenes on a crane. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. just that he had his camera like on a dolly and was moving it around. He was actually flipping it up in the air, 
um, bringing it down, you know, it kind of drifts around and in a way, and, and I, I need to get to know more of his work to know how this plays out in some of the other ones. But in this, in this film, it really nicely kind of goes with the ghost story with the etherealness of that world, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it plays nicely with the brutish world because you have them, you know, down in the earth, you have Tobey, you know, crawling through the mud. Um, you have the women being, being raped in, on the ground and, and then the cameras kind of uh, sometimes they're really close to them, but often a little bit distant and floating. And it almost reminds you that, you know, this is the brutal real world. And there's this other plane, this, um, this ethereal world where this stuff feels differently. Um, hmm. You know, it, it, it emphasized, I guess, rather than just the, the harsh reality and the, that greed and brutishness, um, that there's a different world that just kind of uh, is sad because of all of that. Hmm. Uh, you know, um, it, it, he doesn't try and make it visceral necessarily. He tries to make you um, pensive uh, as you're seeing those scenes, I think. Oh, definitely. There's so much like blending going on of the supernatural and the, the grounded reality where at times you're never quite sure what you're watching. Uh, and there are there are a few clear lines between like the real and the supernatural, and yet there are, as you mentioned before, there are no attempts to like scare. Um, it has this sort of eerie quality and an uncertainty that is present. That really it pays off really with the ending, of course. But you're sort of left throughout the film wondering about the truthness of what I'm watching. I, and I love the way he does that beyond with just the camera movement. There's the lighting. There are several scenes that seem to suggest two planes of reality where the foreground is pitch black. It's silhouette mm. um, against a, a really nicely lit background. You know, a character might come into a room and turn off the lights or uh, I guess Genjuro at one time is, is running around with his sword and knocking candles down. And, and every time he does that, the candle goes out and you just see him stark. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a black shade hmm. um, all of a sudden rather than, uh, you know, any kind of uh, discernible human being. Um, and, but you do have that real world kind of in the background. Hmm. Um, and I think this plays really powerfully with the scene after Miyagi is raped you know, she's raped with her son on her back. It's, it's a ter- terrible scene, you know, terrifying and just uh, heart-wrenching. And as she she gets speared and as she kind of wanders away dying, um, she's in the foreground already entering this other world. Well, in the background, um, quite a ways off, the mm-hmm. men who have just raped her are eating her food. Oh, uh, and, was she raped? I thought she was just attacked Um and just that could, kind of could stab? be. I could be mis. I could be misremembering. I know okay. that they robbed her. I guess I assumed maybe that they raped her as well. I think they um, just, from what I remember uh, watching it, uh, she was just okay. sort of stabbed, and uh, they kind of fondled her in search of food. Oh, uh, that could be. I yeah. guess sometimes I think of these older movies as being more suggestive than maybe they, <laughs> and maybe that's not always uh, called for. <laughs> yeah. But at any at any rate, they they do they do stab her, and mm-hmm. and she's wandering away with her son on her back. And I just I love the play there of the two worlds again. I mean, here she mm-hmm. is in agony and slipping away from the real world, where there in the background are these just awful men. Um, eating, you know, uh, mm-hmm. en- enjoying what they just taken from her. And 
the the film has a lot of those kind of uh, dualities in in the in the picture that mm. I, I just I think they're powerful and and really really interesting to engage with. And I didn't see them the first time through. It was just what happened to her. <laughs> you know, what, what's <laughs> yeah. going on? And so I Precisely. again I, I I would say for people who maybe have seen this and didn't like it uh, or or didn't quite get it. Uh, I agree. There's there's a lot that would come with the second and third viewing of this one. Hmm. Another scene, or well, there are a few scenes I would like to bring up, but the first one is that just the lake scene is probably one of the most famous scenes in the film, and for me, it's the most like beautiful scene where they are moving along this lake in a boat at night time, and they are just kind of enveloped by this fog and the mist, and we see sort of this lone boatman slowly approaching and dying soon after he gives his warning and it's just that how it feels like Mizuguchi is sort of orchestrating how the mist works <laughs> and mm-hmm. everything seems to work out so perfectly in how when they are leaving the scene she kind of just disappears behind this kind of door of fog and it's just Miyagi are you shot. talking about Miyagi yes yeah, she when is, she's yeah. rowing the boat yeah yeah they I, I think that scene is pretty powerful too. And and I don't, is there any any suggestion of the supernatural before that scene? No. That, that seems to be like the transitional scene yes. where the characters are are in a liminal space. You know, mm-hmm. they're it's very it's almost hollow. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's purely just because you know they were in a studio or something like that. There's a hollowness to that scene that really works and suggests they're not in this world anymore. Mm. And then the ghost boat comes and and he you know he says he's not a ghost warns them of pirates there. I, I feel like that's a, uh, the plane where they, they begin to really start to interact with, with the other world. And it's right at that moment. It, it's after that scene that, uh, you know, Genjiro tells Miyagi, Nope, sorry, you can't come with me anymore. <laughs> you and you and the boy go home. And, um, and, and that's when they're separated. It, it's a beautiful moment in the film. Hmm. And, um, very, very touching and powerful, particularly again with uh, Kinuyu Tanaka's uh, the, the way that she's watching them as they're and she's kind of walking along the shore, watching the boat go away. Yeah, um, boy, that and and that brought to mind Army again. By the way, the the Kinoshita film okay. where, where the, with the ending where where she's so powerful, and I, I felt that again when I was watching that scene. There's just a that's kind of a moment where that other world starts to play with this one, and 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 all of its uh, its. Uh, intimations of loss and regret and longing and um the irretrievable you know Mm. these are things that are that are gone and that you're never going to get back no another scene that kind of plays with this perception of the supernatural and the real is the scene where gendro he's following lady wakaza and her uh, lady in waiting through the reeds the first time they're going to the castle i think Uh and you have Genjiro and the lady-in-waiting walking as number two and three uh, in this line of three. And in the front, there's the lady, and she's dressed all in white, and she holds up, she sort of supports her veil with her two arms. And she she looks like she's like floating through the landscape, looking like a ghost, just the way that she kind of floats through those reeds. And it gives it gives sort of this otherworldly aspect to her character compared to the other two which are kind of lumping along after 
Yeah, and did you did you know in the f- the first time you watched it that she was a ghost? No, I had until no it idea. Was revealed? Yeah, I had no idea either. <laughs> uh, I, knew, I knew that there was some sort of like supernatural elements to the film, but I, I didn't know like someone was a ghost or anything. No. Yeah, I guess because I think the a lot of the the copy, you know, the market the promotional materials or whatever kind of refer to it as a ghost story but yeah. i didn't i didn't know that's where that would pop in i was i was i was surprised when when he woke up and you find out that she really was a ghost mm-hmm. um despite all these clues you know that you get beforehand and that again on the second watch all of a sudden become much more meaningful and um and really kind of deepened the the film a little bit i i think that's a beautiful scene too mm. And it comes, you know, the, the, I think one of the story that that particular part is based on is, is the house in the reeds. Um, and I, I, I like that that kind of brings that part to us with the reeds. And as they're walking through all that, it's it really is a beautiful scene again, mm-hmm. which didn't mean as much to me the first time. It wasn't <laughs> that the beauty wasn't there. It's just that the, you know, my my emotional response to it wasn't as, as strong because I, again, didn't know exactly what was going on. Yeah. It, the beauty really pops out on the, uh, on a later viewing. Mm-hmm. One scene in particular that sort of grew uh, a lot in my estimation, the second or third time around, it was the scene where Wakaza, she's performing her song and dance. And suddenly we hear this like male voice chiming in. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was Genjiro, actually, uh, who was singing along with her. And then we see sort of the lights fading and the lady in waiting, she sort of explains to us the twist of the father figure that is uh, kind of haunting the place. And it feels like Mizuguchi is not only playing with the visuals, but he's also playing with introduction of different sounds and how sound relates to reality just as he does with the images in the film and you can also see and hear this when uh, Gendry he wakes up the scene you were talking about earlier when he finds that the castle has been is a ruin basically and you can hear Wakasa's voice she's singing and you're never quite sure if is is this the ghost of Wakaza singing? Is this like just a soundtrack of the film? There's this play with the diegetic and the non-diegetic sound that is just very interesting. I I agree with that. The the sound in this movie is 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 really amazing, and and the music uh, is is fantastic. And I didn't recognize it until the scene where they are traveling across the water, and uh, Tobe's wife Ohama is singing to them, um, but. When the film begins, it's kind of typical score, if I remember correctly. You know, it didn't, mm. there wasn't anything that stood out to me necessarily. But when they get to Lady Wakasa's house, there's this, like, I, it felt contemporary, you know, like mm-hmm. like they were playing with um, with the way that the music was affecting the scene. It, I, I, honestly, I don't, I don't know if this is completely justified, but I thought of the, of, of the, the score for There Will Be Blood, just how it... It's so it's it's dissonant at times, mm-hmm. and it it's it's almost unpleasant with its rhythm, and and just makes everything really unsettling. Um, but but it, it when I say dissonant, I don't necessarily mean um, uh, that it isn't enjoyable to listen to as well, especially with the context of what's going on in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the sound is great. This the the echoes, um, and you know it ends with kind of a haunting sound <laughs> it, yes it's definitely. A, it's, a, it's a very 
very well put together film in terms of the image and the sound, and I hadn't really considered the sound too much yet. There mm. are some supplements on the Criterion DVD that do go into a little bit of uh, Fumio Hayasaka's music, um, and that's, that was definitely welcome because it's something that stood out to me as, uh, as well. But but yeah, there, it's it's wonderful when the when the sounds come up, and and I guess that that's why I thought, oh, here may become the ghost story. You know, this woman is haunted. I mm-hmm. didn't think she was the ghost. <laughs> I, I, if if you don't mind, I have a, a scene that I, I love too. Yeah, that kind of plays sure. with the with Mizuguchi's strength of doing a really long shot where the camera is moving around, and it's it's the final one where I was a little disoriented because you know I thought that we had seen Miyagi get killed, but you don't see her fall down and and stop taking breaths. You know the camera just kind of moves away from her. Mm-hmm. But this is when Genjiro returns home um, after leaving Lady Wakasa. And discovering that he was basically with a ghost for some time. And he goes home and his house is, is dark. And, and it looks a little bit like a ruin, you know. And mm-hmm. he, he enters it. It's dark. He sees some things that have fallen over and have collapsed. And he walks through the house. And he walks. It seemed, I, I, I've watched it a few times to try to figure out how they did this. But it seems like he walks through a room, walks out a door and around the house. And then walks back in, you know, to that room and lo and behold, there is Miyagi with the fire going, smiling and making him some food. Mm. And his son is there sleeping. I, I thought I was disoriented, but again, I didn't know what it meant yet. No. But boy, when I figured it, what, you know, when, when it's revealed what has happened, that's a powerful moment and beautiful filmmaking again, mm-hmm. where you see you know because you i was kind of relieved too the first time here he wanders around and i'm like oh shoot he's gonna find everything is gone and i'm i don't believe it when he sees her there like there's a part of me that says wait that's not quite right mm-hmm. but there's a relief too like oh well good maybe this is gonna end happily and <laughs> he's there with his son and and wife again and she looks okay <laughs> you know she's happy to see him lo and behold she's been expecting him you know she's making him <laughs> dinner and I love the the lighting in that scene and just just how that plays out. It's a, you know, this is the end of the movie, hmm. and and it, it, they have their reunion, and it's it's rather beautiful because it, it's it's again it, it's 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 not taking place in this world, and so some of the things like greed and ambition and all that stuff has has gone away. And we're able to deal with the longing that they've both felt since they've been apart hmm. and with the regret. And it seems like there's a moment where they're, they're you know, all of that has, has been made made okay again. They're going to yeah. be together. Um, and, of course, they're not. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's haunting. And the fact that the little boy was really there, had wandered away from his mm-hmm. caretakers, you know, that, that is, is very haunting. And, yeah. and in, in both a disturbing way and a beautiful way. Um, I haven't quite wrapped my head around my feelings on that yet. Not not feelings of approval or disapproval, but but how it what how it's actually affecting me. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that scene again. Just the the really long shot that that tends to surprise us by how well choreographed it is. I, I still, like I say, I don't fully know how they how they lit that fire and got everything nice and cleaned up <laughs> <laughs> while Gen, while Genjiro was wandering around the house. But uh, but it worked for me. Beautiful stuff. I, mm. I really do, really do like it. Yeah. I, I, I love it. And and the, even today, the more we, we've been talking about it, the more the more uh, my estimation of it is is growing. Which is one of the beautiful things about doing these shows. You know, yeah. I 
I really loved the film, and then talking about it with you, more facets pop out. I'm able to articulate why I like certain scenes and things, um, and it makes them even more powerful. It's it's, mm. it's awesome. I think I mentioned before that I had some issues with the film. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, um, the it's it's not so much to do with Mizuguchi and the way he tells the story. It's more to do with just the the lessons that are learnt in the film and the dialogue in the film, they are a bit too like on point for me. Uh, there's not much subtlety and you have like throughout the first half an hour, you have basically characters telling us that greed is bad in so many words. <laughs> so it's very much... As if like, we're not getting it by what yes, they're doing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's very much like hammering the nail in, telling us that we should stay here, we should take care of ourselves, we should like do what we're supposed to do, not go out and make heaps of money. Money won't make us happy. They even say that in the film, I think. So, uh, And you also have these these elder chaps coming to our characters telling us again and again that the path you're on now, that is not the right path for you. And I think that those are sort of, it's sort of nitpicking, but still uh, it kind of becomes a bit too simple for me. It's not, it's not much nuance for me there. I didn't have a problem with it, but I, I, I see what you mean. Um, hmm. it, it, it's not because I think you're wrong. Uh, I, I can see why that would get grating, and, and maybe you just ruined the film for me. No, <laughs> just kidding. On my next viewing, I'll be annoyed the whole time. No, uh, uh, teasing. I, I, I definitely remember that. And in fact, you know, even Genjiro is is kind of uh, trying to help Tobe choose a better path, even though Genjiro himself is on a bad path. Um. And yeah, I, I don't have a good response as far as to to say why it didn't bother me. Hmm. Um, I don't know uh, because you're right; they they are kind of hitting on that a lot. Hmm. Um, I, I I tend to not uh, just in general, not just with this film, but in general, um, be too uh, astute <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to things like that. I, I usually let the characters say what they're going to say and and don't. Don't I don't get annoyed until later on when I'm kind of paying attention and thinking about it. So it tends not to affect me, which is a hmm. fault of mine. I'm, I, I'm not, <laughs> not saying that uh, I'm not bothered by it, more just that it's not something that I'm usually um, usually able to to capture necessarily. I, hmm. But yeah, no, but I, 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 I don't think I see what you mean. Yeah, I don't think like I'm I'm the same basically. Where if I'm very on board with a the film, there's you need to do a lot wrong for me to notice it, basically. Uh -huh. So if I'm really into a film, I can forgive it for almost anything. But uh, I think this was my... F when the first time around, when there was this sort of... The style of storytelling, the vagueness, where I was... That was kind of what I was struggling with, the symbolicness of it all um, the first time around. And that's when I noticed... As, in particular, the first half of the film is really... It's really blunt, uh, whereas the second half of the film is much more vague for me, which I think serves it more in a good in, way. In a good way, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I wonder if some of it is is because I wasn't I wasn't looking at it to to teach me anything. Uh, I wasn't expecting anything uh, no. from it. I was more looking at it as an exploration of of all of this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And I did read the Philip. I, I don't remember how I felt about that the first time through, but right after I watched, I read the Philip Lope essay, mm-hmm. which kind of does address the thing we talked about earlier where, you know, yeah, all this stuff is wrong, but what else are you going to do? And mm-hmm. is doing it differently going to necessarily mean a better life? And it's possible that that has affected my, my, my impression of, of that dialogue where I look at it now and I go, huh, yeah, whatever, old man, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you could all stay there, but you're all kind of hosed, you know, you're all mm. in, in this war and your home is being raided and burned and people are, you know, the men are being conscripted against their will into the army. Mm. Um, and the women are being raped and left behind or taken, um, for other purposes. And, and so maybe some of those things, you know, I, the, the next time watching through, thanks to that essay, I wasn't necessarily on board with the idea that these guys were doing anything particularly wrong. Greedy, mm. yes. Um, and, to, you know, a little bit envious and overly ambitious, yes. Foolish, yes. But wrong, I don't know, didn't quite see that. Did it, mm. And did it ruin their lives? Yes. But again, was it the wrong thing? I, I don't know. You know, we, yeah. we do this stuff all the time. We are always trying to seek, a, well, not always, but most of us are trying to seek for, for better things. And oftentimes it, our motive is for family, um, for relationships or for, for money or for, you know, just pure ambition. Hmm. And um, and we can hear these lessons all our lives and never you know, never quite believe them. Hmm. <laughs> so I, th- I think that maybe, maybe and I, I, this is off the cuff. Maybe that's why it didn't bother me on my second and, and third viewing. Yeah. And, and I don't even know if I noticed it the first time. I probably didn't, but um, I think that that may be why it didn't bother me. Yeah. I can see I'll, I'll, I'll watch it again though. And, you know, at, at a later date and let you know if, if I'm like, Oh yeah, geez, you're right. Uh, <laughs> that was really this annoying. <laughs> Forget um, it. We get to. Let's do a different show so we can wash that yeah. away. <laughs> I'm sure that won't happen, but um, but I will let you know if, if I if 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 paying attention to that um, yeah. affects me in the same way. It's not such a huge drawback for me, just in terms of like the entire deal of the film. I think it's uh, it, he more than does up uh, for that one uh, for me. So uh, the rest of the qualities of the film are so high. So yeah. Uh, I read that Ebert he drew comparisons to Murnau's Sunrise. Have you seen that one? I have. I love that movie. Yeah, and you can definitely see the similarities with the husband abandoning his wife and child to go with this sort of exotic woman. Yeah, and and even the almost the ethereal nature of that one. There's the boat scene. Yeah. There's the overlay of when they're walking through the street, which is a happy scene in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't read that review, and so I, I hadn't made that connection before. But I do like I like that. I like thinking of it that way. Mm-hmm. I do feel differently toward the man in Sunrise than I do toward the man in Ugetsu. Genjiro, yeah. again to me is kind of uh, lulled away, whereas yeah. the man in Sunrise is kind of deliberately. An idiot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, he he is cruel to his wife. I mean, he's looking to murder her, um, and exactly. so there's a different feeling for me there. But I, I love that. Um, I love thinking about that similarity. That that's a rich thread to go into. Hmm. Men and uh, our fragile <laughs> beings. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're we are dumb. Yeah, we can't <laughs> deal with the harsh realities and hard work and hard life. <laughs> we do dumb things to to make ourselves get what we think we want exactly (laughs) 
Well, and, and I guess in a way that kind of goes back to the whole problem with the, not the problem with the film, but the problem in the film from the beginning is this war, is civil war. I'm just going to go out on a limb there and say that that wasn't because of any noble purpose. It probably mm-hmm. was a couple of leaders, you know, men, rulers who just wanted more land or, you know, had a grudge or something and, and destroyed the, all the, the neighborhood. Um, yeah. I don't their, think that's uh, too much of a leap to take. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it all, you know, the, the root of all of that is, yeah. it, you know, and then it goes down to the more intimate setting of here's a home now and here's how these things are affecting the home, you know, the war in general, but also the own, the men's own, uh, less, less, uh, less heightened, less, uh, less, uh, you know, didn't have as many large of effects, but here, here's how these men do the same thing to their own home. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting stuff. And the women who are much more like cautious and responsible than like the center, the moral sense of the film. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Talking about the two releases themselves, I have to give the the upper hand to Criterion here, yeah, just in terms of the visuals. With um, I watched this on Hulu Plus uh, and also the Blu-ray of Master Cinema, and uh, I found that the the Master Cinema disc it tended to slip into like grey tones, uh, the black um, the black areas of the film, um, the black levels on and the contrast on the Criterion was much more consistent for me. But other than that, I think Master Cinema is slightly sharper in my eyes uh, than what I saw on Hulu, but I can't speak to the DVD version. But you've seen the DVD, haven't you? Yeah, and it's an older DVD. I think this one came out in 2005. It has it has its issues. I would love, love if Criterion released yeah. this on Blu-ray here, um, and I'd be very interested to see where, where they went with the contrast because I, hmm. I, I, like I do like the, the this the stark black and white in a way, but I can mm-hmm. see where some grays, not inconsistent graying, not where it looks like the film just wasn't, uh, you know, transferred uh, and, and treated quite in the same way throughout. But I can see where some grayness might actually heighten the um, the ethereal nature of the film as well. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd be curious to to compare um, those. I, I, I would love that that set. You, that, it was a beautiful set, the the Masters of Cinema set. I, Definitely, I was tempted yeah. to... Um, to splurge and, and get it and get a region free player, but I, I didn't do it. And it's obviously too late for me unless I really <laughs> want to splurge. <laughs> yeah. Um, but how wonderful that they have that, that large um, Mizuguchi box set. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. I do love the packaging for the criterion. It's, it's a beautiful uh, digi pack. with yeah. Just lovely images. Um, but boy, I, I, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a great masters of cinema release. Just mm. wonderful. I think the print that, both companies are working off it seems sort of damaged we can see a lot of scratches and just overall wear and tear on the transfer um so hopefully if we get a new transfer of the film we'll see a blu-ray of it but uh sound wise i think it was uh fairly fairly good uh there's a bit of cracking but only you really only notice it in the quiet scenes uh as you do most of the times with these older black and white films so yeah when it comes to extra features, Criterion definitely has a good package. Uh, the MOC is, of course, it has like an, an additional film, which is sort of the best special feature you can get. But it has, uh, in terms of contextualizing Ugetsu itself, it only has an eight-minute introduction by Tony Raines. Uh, whereas Criterion, I think, has a couple of features and also commentary. 
Yeah, it has an audio commentary by Tony Raines, which yeah. I haven't listened to. Um, I Again, one of those things where I was like, oh, I need to do that, <laughs> and I haven't <laughs> done it yet. Um, but it has a couple of, uh, I can just read them to you. There's there's a, a nice, um, uh, called Two Worlds in, Intertwined. It's a 14-minute appreciation by um, Shinoda, Masa, Masahiro Shinoda. Mm-hmm. And that was, I watched that, and that was um, really nice. And then there's Process and Production, which is a 20-minute interview with uh, Tokuzo Tanaka, who mm-hmm. was the uh, the first assistant director on the film. And that was really interesting because he gets into some of Mitsuguchi's, um, you know, style or process and how he goes about doing things. Um, there's also an interview with uh, Kazuo Miyagawa, Miyagawa from 1992. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a second disc in this DVD that includes the the 150-minute um, documentary um, the Kenji, Kenji Mitsuguchi, The Life of a Film Director, which is by um, Kaneto Shindo. Mm-hmm. And I didn't watch that either, so I, I can't say if that's wonderful. That is a long documentary, 150-minute documentary. I've that's, read some quite rave reviews on that one. Um, I'm, and also I, I the will fir- watch it, but yeah, yeah, I haven't yet. The first two that you mentioned, they are both on Hulu Plus, so I'll watch those also. But as you mentioned, that uh, that box set, Master Cinema box set, it includes also like a 300-page book or something. Um, so <laughs> it is Very quite jealous. a break. Uh, but I haven't <laughs> had a chance to dive into that one yet. Uh, I think I'll be uh, digging into more of Mizuguchi's films uh, in the next days to come now that I've watched uh, Ugetsu. So. Any, any that are calling your name um, right off the bat? I think I want to go chronologically because the films included are all from his day production days. So uh, Oyosama is the other film that was included uh, on the Ogetsu uh, disc. So I think I'm going to watch that later today. But okay. also like Sancho the Bailiff, of course. Nice. Uh, nice. And yeah. also that uh, Chigetsu Monogatari uh, film as well. I've heard good things about that. Yeah, I have too. And that one did come out on Blu-ray from Criterion. Um mm-hmm. And then they did Life of Oharu around that same time, it, it seems, or you know, maybe within a year or two of each other, but it, all that starts to feel close together. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I do have hope that Ugetsu is in the works, but it's it's still sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can start uh, wrapping up. You mentioned that uh, you weren't doing a Mizuguchi set until next year about, but what are the next sets you are covering on the Eclipse View? Oh, so we next Saturday we will be recording um, Aki Kurosaki's Leningrad Cowboys. Nice. <laughs> which, which I, I, have you ever seen any um, Kurosaki films? I've seen uh, Le Havre, um, uh-huh. and I think I've seen a few more, but I can't remember them. I'm not the biggest Kurosaki fan, but um, I enjoyed uh, Le Havre fairly. See, and, and I, I like Le Havre, but I but I. I'm a big fan of his uh, work in the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. I just think I, I love um, Matty Palompa, who is what was kind of his main go-to actor at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, these films are a riot. These Leningrad Cowboys films are hilarious and just fun and just bizarre in in, in a good way again. So so we'll be doing that one. Um, and I think uh, tentatively we. we I think this is pretty for sure, but um, we're probably going to do the late Ray set in November, um, particularly since Criterion is releasing the the um, Apu trilogy that month. And then um, we'll be covering the Julien Duvivier in the 1930s set um, come December. Once we've each had a, time, a chance to pick that up, it's released in November. We'll pick it up, watch the films, and then do that one in 
at that time. So we're excited. Yes. We've got some good stuff on, on the docket. And we have quite a few of the Japanese masters uh, left. We've got a yes. Kurosawa set, some more Ozu. We've got Mizuguchi. Um, and I think we're going to try and do a kind of a, a a big series on, you know, Japanese masters and, and those sets. Hmm. Uh, and it seems that Eclipse uh, set uh, is living quite well with Criterion now. I think they released more releases this year than last year. Yep. The last two years, they released only two sets per year, and they were pretty spaced out. But this year, they've um, released three, and they seem to come more regularly. For example, even though the, the Kenosha set was released last year, it was released in December. So within the last 12 months, or they'll have released four sets, which is you know really amping it up. I, um, I don't know if they have any, uh, you know, how many they have in the works right now, but um, Michael Koreski has uh, you know confirmed to us that they that it isn't dying <laughs> they <laughs> they have more plans and they'll continue to release them and maybe more frequently now uh, be, and I'm particularly thrilled because the the ones that they've been releasing have been brilliant you know the the Silent Ozu um three crime dramas set um is just fantastic the Kenosha set is fantastic we just got the Agnes Varda set hmm. and then people are really excited about this Julian de Vivier set and aren't necessarily just griping that it isn't blu-ray but are just happy that it's coming which is i think the right approach to these eclipse sets hmm. you know thank you for just giving them to us because we probably wouldn't get them otherwise so so yeah i think it's living well and uh, we'll keep going <laughs> great let's tell the listeners where they can find you online Joe. Okay, so I blog at a blog called themooksandthegripes.com uh, and where I, I, I do a lot of uh, books, uh, books in translation, and also some movie reviews, in particular uh, uh, Criterion releases. And um, but maybe the easiest way to, to find me and, and catch up with what I'm doing is, is through my Twitter account, which is at mooks, that's M-O-O-K-S-E. Great. Um, and you can find us on Twitter, MSC underscore cast, or on Facebook. Uh, just search for Masters of Cinema Cast there. Tom will be joining us hopefully next time. We'll be discussing The Offense with uh, James Marsh. Trevor, it's been a wonderful time uh, having you on and discussing Ugetsu with you. My pleasure. I, I thank you again, and I'm looking forward to your thoughts on The Offense. Great. <laughs> uh, so until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.